Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me, the one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, would that the words of my mouth be acceptable, Lord, in your sight, and that the meditation of all of our hearts would be ever upon your glory and grace that we might know that you are our King that we would hate our sin with a holy hatred, that we would leave behind the treasures of this world, that we would not love money so much and the things of this world so much that our love for you is watered down, polluted, compromised, that cause us with new fervor to know the glory of revival, of reformation, And so bless us through your word this morning, we ask in your name. Amen. It is easy. Uh, When you go back and you read the Old Testament and you look at rebellious Israel to not properly diagnose the nature of their rebellion and their hard-heartedness and to say, well, at least... I'm not that stubborn. Of course, when you do this, if God were less gracious, he would say, oh, wait a second, I I have a book here. And in this book are all of your arrogant sins. And they were laid before you. Who could stand? Scriptures speak of that. If God would keep a record, who could stand before him? Uh, What we are often doing in the pursuit of obeying God's law is, in fact, not seeking to obey his law, but to create unto ourselves a law and to give ourselves a constant sort of therapeutic out for when we do disobey and we find ourselves often comparing ourselves with the worst that society has to offer. You don't pick the good ones, do you, when you seek to compare? You pick the ones you know you're better than. But are you? 
And so when we come to the church and the letter written to the church in Laodicea, we may look at that and go, well, at least I'm not like that. Well, let me tell you this. The cultural context when the church of Laodicea found themselves is not in any way really unlike the cultural context we find today. We live in a society that is even more secure as it relates to the pursuit of and the gaining of wealth, even just through hard work. And though the American dream can be something worth pursuing, oftentimes it supplants any pursuit of the kingdom of Christ because we are enchanted by the wealth of this world. Now you may say, I'm not like that. And I would say to you, what you ought to do as you hear this sermon, as you go home this day, I would invite you to trace the amount of time, the amount of money, and the amount of affection you lend to something. And whatever that thing is, it can be sure to be your God. It can be a car. It can be a house. It can be a child. It can be a spouse. It can be all manner of things. Trace, time, money, attention, and you will find your God. The problem at the heart at Laodicea was their God was no longer Christ who had been raised from the dead, but the things of this world. And in order to justify to themselves that they did not need Christ, they built their house upon the sand that is the riches and security of this world. May that not be us. And so Christ comes to not only the church in Laodicea, but to us this morning, and he seeks to challenge our lukewarm Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. So may we, by God's grace, be convicted this morning. Three points that I want to make. The first, the true amen. The true amen. Second, worthless works. Worthless works. And then thirdly, the promise to true saints the promise to true saints. Let's look at the first point this morning, the true amen. Christ says here at the opening of this letter, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful, and the true witness. Now this is three ways of saying the same thing. It is roughly translated amen as yes. In fact, one of the reasons I say amen at the end of every psalm or hymn, is because I am expressing I agree with what we have just sung. Now, what I would love for you to do, not just the four of you who are doing it right now, but all of you, when I say amen, I know you're Presbyterian, so we're going to try this more than once. You say, all right, good. Man, we don't even need to do it again. Good. Plus, that would just start to get a little bit cheesy, and it would feel like we're at some sort of rally. Although revival is essential in the life of the church. Now, um, Douglas Kelly, who uh, was one of my professors at RTS, has written a wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation. And this is what he says about this introduction. He writes, Christ is effectively saying, I am the amen. Yes, I am amen. And yes, I am amen. Then he gives a reason that backs up what he or why he is the threefold amen. Christ is the threefold amen, and he says the reason that I can be the yes, which is another biblical way of saying amen, is that I am the origin and the complete controller of everything in created reality. 
I am in charge of it all. And that is why I'm able to work it all out where at the end of your life, there is a loud ringing, yes, if you look towards me. Now, if you know, know anything about Doug Kelly, this is, I know there's an editor of every book. This is his particular type of syntax. It's very easy. It's just very, here's how it is. Christ is saying, I'm the arbiter of truth. Whatever I say is the way it is. And when I testify to something, that is the first and final word. I am the amen. And so, as he is writing to the church in Laodicea, he is explaining to them, I know what is true, I know what is false, and in the end, all that matters is that I represent you before the throne of God. And what I say of you before the Father is the testimony that matters. That is the testimony. And so Christ calls himself the amen because he sees in a people a compromise that would cause them to not take him at his word, to doubt what he says, to embrace falsehood instead of the truth. And Christ is, in essence, taking them by the face with his hand, and he's looking them in the eyes, and he's saying, you need to listen to me because I know what's going on in you. Now, oftentimes, the disposition of men, especially in a state of rebellion, when Christ comes to them directly, is to do what? He's got your face, and you're going, you know, and the fingerprints are left on your cheeks, and your eyes are sort of all over the place because you can't stand to look him in the face. You know why? Because he sees into your very soul, and you know this. This is oftentimes, children, why you don't want to look at your parents in the eye when they ask you the tr- a question that is calling you to tell the truth. It's much harder to be still and to look someone in the eyes and lie to them, to be inauthentic, to be a hypocrite. Christ sees them. He sees you. And what is at stake here is the truth. Everything Christ says is true. All that he knows and all that he decrees stands for eternity. And so the church in Laodicea must take Christ at his word because he knows. He knows their true spiritual condition. And the same can be said of us. He knows us completely and without error. I'm 41 years old, and there are times where I still think that I can fool God by impressing men. You do this? You get dressed up, and you think that the inauthentic picture that you're presenting before men will also fool the judge of heaven and earth who sees into the very heart of who you are. Or maybe you're just thinking, God, please accept this little sliver of who I am right now and all my good behavior. To ask Christ to be anything other than the righteous judge of heaven and earth is something he cannot do. Remember, we confess God can only do that which is all his holy will. He is limited in terms of his being, and he is limited in this way. He cannot lie. He is one who is not just knowing the truth, but he is the origin of all that is true. And when he speaks, we can take him at his word. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the threefold amen of God. 
And so when we encounter Christ in his word, he is the sum and substance of the gospel. The father is saying, this is the authentic. This is the real. This is the only. This is the true way of salvation. And so we come to Christ and we do not lean upon our own understanding. We do not seek salvation in the world. We seek it in him. And because of this, Christ is worthy of our reverence, our trust, and our awe. Now, secondly, as Christ presents to the church who he is, he confronts them and their sin. Now, Laodicea was a city, a very wealthy city, but Laodicea was somewhat unfortunately placed, and though they were connected to this amazing Roman aqueduct system, an amazing public works project, the water that got to the city in Laodicea because of the travel, the distance it had to travel was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. Now, there will some who say cold means not, not led by the Spirit. That is not what Christ is saying. What he is saying here is this. What do you, why would you drink a hot beverage? Right now, it's, well, it's February. It's already February. Is that crazy? It's already February, and oftentimes in our home, we'll have hot tea. And why do we do that? It's comforting. It's soothing. Now, let's say you've just got finished with an hour of working out hard, and you go in, and you make a cup of hot tea. No. What do you go for instead? Cold, refreshing, yes, water. (laughs) Thank you. I forgot. I needed to be reminded. One is comforting. One is refreshing. Christ is saying to the church in Laodicea, you're neither of those things. You're useless. You have no use. You are of no value. To whom? To the culture that is neither hot or cold. Laodicea was wearing secular camouflage. They were nominal in their Christianity. Though they were divided from the world by being members of the visible church, they looked just like the world. And so what does Christ say is the truth of these people. Though they may be dressed well and they go to church, though they may be members of the visible church, there is no distinction between them and the world. They are just like the world. They are neither hot nor nor cold. And for this reason, what does Christ say? The judgment is judgment. (laughs) I will spit you out of my mouth. The conclusion is judgment. Now, this is what they say. This is the testimony that leads to worthless, insincere, nominal Christianity. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Ayn Rand would be a right at home in this church. And others of her ilk. Many of those who belong to the sort of secular humanist variety. Many Christians who come to church, but they do nothing to support the work of the church. They haven't tithed in years because they hold on to the things of this world and they will not let it go because they do not have in their hearts a priority of the kingdom of Christ. And I don't mean just the tithe. This is not one of those sermons where I'm trying to get you to give more money. But it reflects what? A principle of priority. 
Where is your treasure? And what this, maybe, I don't know if I should say saints. The members of the church, of the visible church in Laodicea, they had traded the wealth of the gospel for the wealth of the world. And they came to this wretched conclusion. I need nothing. Do you know how foolish that statement is anyway? Do you see how even in our country, the wealth of these great corporations can be gained and lost in a day? Where is the security? Only the blind believe that security can come in the wealth of this world. I remember my grandparents lived through the Great Depression, or at least had relatives that lived through the Great Depression. My grandmother's father at one point had nothing. And the last $20 bill he had, he stuck in an old Charles Dickens novel. And the name of the novel is Hard Times. (laughs) And he said, this is it. This is what we got left. And they took that book and they put it on the shelf. $20 to their name. And they were at one point a very wealthy family in Atlanta, taken all of it away from them. Maybe some of you have in-laws at one point who buried money in the backyard, (laughs) in a jar, underground. Every nation has gone through at some point a cycle of thriving and growing and then collapsing under its own secular, hedonistic weight, like Rome. And not too many years from now, some may say even of our own nation. We are collapsing under the weight of our own hedonistic, secular pursuits. And this is why. This is why. This is how we justify those pursuits. We say, in particular, to Christ, what you have, I don't need it. It's the disposition of the rich young ruler. And that is why Christ said of the rich young ruler, when Christ said to him, go and sell everything you have. He could have done this. But he went away sad because he loved his wealth more than he loved the call to discipleship. And so Christ turned to his disciples and said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? It is because, it is because oftentimes the wealth of this world blinds us from our own spiritual poverty. They said we are rich, We have prospered. We need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember Christ says? Where does that insight, where does that understanding come from that though we may be in terms of the testimony of the world and outside conditions secure, Where does the knowledge of our insecurity come from? From the scriptures. The word was no longer their guide, and they no longer cared for the glory and the gift that Christ had to offer them through his Holy Spirit. That is the cause of their lukewarmness. And so I would say this, if you are struggling with your faith and assurance and there is creeping into your heart a kind of despisal because you do not feel like a Christian, go to your works. And ask yourself, 
Am I living in such a way that I'm honoring Christ with my life or have embraced the compromise of the world? And more than likely, the odds are you have compromised. You testify to something that is untrue about yourself. And so you reject the grace of Christ Jesus. They were blind. They were cold to the things of Christ. They were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is, in fact, the way they really were. They had grown cool in their affections toward Christ and warm or hot in their affections to the world. And so what does Christ then counsel them to do? Now, this is counsel. And this word is glorious. And this counsel is a word that anticipates that they will listen, that they will repent. And it is offered to them so that they may repent. And so what does Christ do? He counsels them to be revived and reformed in the way that they receive and appreciate that which only he can give. So what does he say? Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. That's the first thing, so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Three things, three treasures, three things that they would get from the world in their own human self-reliant efforts, and yet Christ says, you may think you have these things, but in fact, I'm the only market that actually sells them. This is why the Puritans called the Lord's Day the market day of the soul, so that you might come into the Lord's house and buy from him food, clothing, healing. Now, when Christ here says buy, he does not mean by works, For we know in the book of Isaiah, he says, come and buy without what? Money. We do not tithe in order to merit the favor of God. Our tithing is an expression of allegiance because we've received from him freely the gift of grace. And so we give everything we have to him. And all of our lives and the nature and understanding of our wealth and investment comes having received the free offer of the gospel. All good works originate from a heart that is transformed by free grace. The problem is this. We seek to be clothed by the world. We seek to be made wealthy by the world. We seek to be healed by the world. And yet ultimately, all of these things are gifts that only God can give. And look at the way the world works. If you're going to take from God his authority, if you're going to remove from him the authority and the sovereignty and the offering of these gifts, you must get them yourself. If you do not freely receive them, you must with great violence grab them. And violence is what is needed. Violence against others and against God's own providence and his own principles and law. 
Instead, the Lord calls us to repent, to realize that we are in fact not rich, that we do not have what is needed, that only he can give it. And that we are to live in this state of free grace, of reformation and revival all the days of our lives. And when that little thought creeps into your mind, look at what I have done. If we ever, as a congregation, come to the point and say, look at what we have done. And when I say look at what we have done, I mean in the theme of we did not humbly rely upon God for this and we will not thank him for this. It's easy to forget to give thanks, isn't it? It's easy to think, man, we did it. We've done nothing. That you're here, not because you're smarter, wiser, richer, more powerful. Christ loves to gather to himself the refuse of the world so that he might show those who are pride and arrogant in their riches and power just what kind of people they're called to be and what God can do with a bunch of folks like us. The call is to come to Christ for wealth, for redemption and revival, and to apply the salve of Scripture, his truth and his word, so that you may see as things truly are. That's verse 18. Now let's look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Third point, the promise to the saints. Children, you must believe this. And I think you know it in your hearts, although sometimes you use it as an excuse to disobey. That the hardness and the discipline and at times the anger of your parents towards your sin is not evidence of a lack of love and faithfulness. It is, in fact, the authentication of their love and faithfulness to you. And when you say you're being mean, what you're actually doing is you're pouting and you love your sin more than obedience. Now, sometimes maybe your parents are mean. I've been mean from time to time. And sometimes I'm not jealous for the righteousness of my children I'm just inconvenienced and I'm fed up because the noise is, do y'all struggle with noise, especially at the end of the day? Can y'all just be quiet? Do you know what I'm talking about? Christ is not impatient here with his people. Christ is looking at the church. He wants them to look at him and he is saying to them, you need to listen. The way that you're going is the path to destruction. And I am compelled by my holiness, not only to judge you if you disobey, but I am compelled by my mercy to call you to repentance so that if you repent, guess what? I'll heal you. That Christ is knocking on the door of hard-hearted churches. There is no church in this country However wretched, however heretical they are in their theology, if they would but open the door to the truth of Scripture, Christ would come in and reform them. But what must they do? They must bring Christ and his word into their midst and stop embracing the wretched doctrines of this world. And yes, safety is wealth. 
These churches that seek safety or they seek to be honored by the world, they don't want the world to hate them, they will soon find out that the world wants nothing to do with truth tellers. Because what does the truth do? It confronts the world. It confronts our love of the world. So what must we do? Christ is saying to the church in Laodicea, and I want you to think of it. He's there at the door, and he's knocking on the door. This is not Arminianism. If you open the door to Jesus, he'll come right in as though he's some sort of pathetic, apathetic God who can do nothing apart from your free will. This has nothing to do with that. This is a call to reformation. And Christ is coming to the church, and he is saying, I'm knocking on the door of your church. Open the doors and be revived, be reformed. And this is what has happened in every generation where the church has gone back to the word as its source of authority and strength, reformation. There is a whole epoch in history in this world that for hundreds of years, the word of God was applied to churches, and we call it the reformation. And what it did is it moved hundreds of thousands, millions of people away from a life that did not know the word or apply the word. And all of a sudden, as the word was brought into the worship of the saints of God, their lives were transformed. This is what the word does, because this is what the Holy Spirit has been sent in the world to do to transform our lives. And so what Christ is doing is he is extending revival and the offer of reformation even to those who are seemingly dead. But the only way that reformation and revival will happen is that if it is a word-centered reformation, it must be grounded upon the law of God and the words of Christ Jesus. And we must not despise the reproof and the discipline of Christ. But when Christ says, you are walking in a way that is not in keeping with my word, we can't say, well, too bad. I love it. We must say what? I'm sorry. Forgive me. Repent. Verse 19. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Who are the men who have opened the door? Wycliffe. Luther, Calvin, and many others. And you will find more men, even now, as the darkness encroaches upon the church, all they must do is open the door. Stick their foot in the door, but they must open it and make sure it doesn't close again. Sometimes this is actually literal. John MacArthur stuck his foot in the door, and he said, no. We're not going to close the door. I think you know what I'm talking about. I hope you know what I'm talking about. And where does that glorious fount of the transforming word of God come from? It comes from the ministry of word in the church. And what has in fact happened, the great testimony of so many churches today, is they have willingly shut the door to the truth of Christ. And they've said, we don't need it. We'll get by for a little while without it. You don't coast in the kingdom. There's no coasting. 
You are either exposed to the word or you are what? You are either seeking the riches of glory of heaven or you are seeking the riches of earth. Boy, there's, there's a lot of places to go from here. But the simple promise, look at the promise. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I mean, I've, I've entertained some wonderful people. I've had dear, blessed friends who have come to my table and we have eaten together and we have, oh, we have delighted in the fruit of this earth. But to sit in fellowship with Christ Jesus, every Lord's Day, And especially in the worship of the saints, there is laid before us a bounty. And the only reason we do not eat of that bounty with zealous joy is because we are already full with the things of this world. It is the only alternative. Gosh. I mean, I I have such an appetite that I will eat something and I can't wait for the evening to eat the leftovers. (laughs) If it helps, think of evening worship like that, which you ought not do. It's not the leftovers. It's another glorious meal. And I'm not talking about the quality of my preaching. I'm talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the finest dining all around And we get to sit at the table and not just eat the blessing and take into us the glory of Christ's redemption. We sit, we fellowship, we are in the presence of Christ himself and not only with Christ, but if the door of our lives is wide open and we seek faithfulness to him, the one, verse 21, who conquers, conquering here means what? that we do not shut our lives, the door of our lives, to the ministry of the word. If we conquer in Christ, we will not only sit at the the table with Christ, we will sit upon his throne. It is a royal banqueting table. And not only will we sit with Christ, but in Christ, we will sit with the Father and the Spirit. What are you trading that future for? And here's the thing. We will trade that promise for garbage. Sometimes literal garbage. I mean, think about the things that you eat. (laughs) I mean, I, I look at my children, and sometimes the things that they prefer to other things, steak, now I have cereal. Are you crazy? And Lewis talks about this, I think maybe in the weight of glory. That Christ comes to us and he presents to us this glorious gift of a holiday at the sea. And there we are busy playing in the mud. And we're making our little mud pies. And we reject the offer of a holiday at sea because we cannot envision anything more glorious than our mud pie making. That is how blind we really are. And just because it has a battery in it 
doesn't make it less or any more glorious or enduring than the things that our grandparents had. You know what I mean? Radios without screens. <laughs> Wind-up toys. Oh, those things are not alluring to me. But they are equally, equally vain. You see, Christ has made us. He has designed us to conquer, to crave power, to take dominion. But the dominion of this world will not last. But dominion through Christ Jesus will. My call to you this morning is to choose the more enduring kingdom. Choose the more enduring kingdom. Give to that kingdom. Serve the king of that kingdom. And what you will inherit is a throne. If your car is your kingdom, then the best thing you can hope for is a heated leather seat. And then that heater breaks. (laughs) And then the leather splits. Or if it's in a minivan, your kids... I mean grind Cheerio dust into the fabric so that there is no distance between the fiber and the crumbs of the Cheerio. How did this become so embedded? And if you're not careful, that will be your life and the world. You will not know where your heart ends and the world begins. Choose the more enduring kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we pray.